in Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Simply the best Nissan. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Only Peter speaks up. He alone gives this great confession to Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When Peter made that great statement, he went contrary to the opinions of nearly every person who had ever heard of Jesus in his own time and the vast majority right up to this very day. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve is beginning a brand new series of lessons from the Gospel of Matthew about the nature of the church. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along as we begin in Matthew 16, verse 13, and start to examine what Peter said and what Jesus meant by his response. Here's Pastor Steve. Once again, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we find ourselves in the most interesting of passages. And I want to read to you Matthew 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. This passage of Scripture, without doubt, has caused more controversy than any other section in the entire Gospel of Matthew. It has been the storm center of endless debates between Roman Catholics and Protestants throughout church history. And the reason for that is because it concerns the Apostle Peter's role in the church. As you know, it is the belief of Roman Catholicism that these verses teach that Jesus was identifying Peter as the rock upon which he would build his church, which is interpreted then to mean that he was appointing Peter as the first pope of the church. And therefore, by virtue of Peter's exalted position as head of the church, and then all succeeding bishops of the church at Rome were then given the authority to admit or exclude individuals from heaven, as well as the power to grant or not grant forgiveness of someone's sins. Now, that is the official Roman Catholic position, and it comes primarily out of, out of these verses. Protestants don't see it that way. Not only do Protestants reject the view of this text that says that Jesus was appointing Peter as the first pope, But they go beyond that. Protestants reject the very concept of a pope in the first place, acting as head of the church. And Protestants would point out that the New Testament clearly states 
that there is one who is the head of the church, and it's not a mere man. It's not a religious figure. It's Jesus Christ himself. Protestants would point out that in Colossians, for example, 1.18, the Apostle Paul, speaking of Christ, said he also is the head of the body, the church. Christ, Paul said, is the head of the church. In Ephesians 5.23, Paul also spoke of the same thing when he said, for the husband is the head of the wife, even so as Christ is also the head of the church. However, in arguing that Matthew 16 isn't teaching that Jesus chose Peter as the Pope, Protestants go to great lengths to, I think, downplay and wrongly minimize Peter and his, the important role that Peter played in the early church. I think that's going too far, because as we look at these verses, we can see that, that Jesus did say some very important and impressive things to Peter about Peter, things he said to nobody else. For example, in verse 18, Jesus called him a rock. He said, you are Peter. That, that word Peter is the Greek word Petros. It literally means a rock. What a great compliment. That's a great compliment given to this man who at that point was quite unstable in his character, very up and down, uh, vacillating individual. But Jesus was saying, Peter, you will be, in terms of your character, a rock. You'll be strong. You'll be firm. You'll be resolute. You'll be like granite, Peter. That's a great compliment. He said that about nobody else. So regardless of whether you take the Catholic or Protestant position on the concept of a pope, you can see that Jesus had some exalted things to say about Peter. He said in verse 19, he said that Peter was given some kind of religious authority. We're not going to get to this text today. We're just going to open up this passage at the beginning, but we will eventually get to this. He said that you are given the keys of the kingdom of heaven That's some special authority that nobody else was given. And then he tells him that he'll be able to bind and loose on earth what has already been bound and loosed in heaven. It sure sounds like Jesus is exalting Peter. So even if you don't believe that that Peter here is being singled out to be the Pope, we should be careful that we don't minimize the very positive things that Jesus said about him as really an overreaction to the extreme exaltation given to this man by some. Now, this morning, as we come to this very controversial passage of Scripture, we want to approach it as best we can without any kind of a religious bias. We don't want a Catholic bias, and we we don't want a Protestant evangelical bias either. Our desire, as those committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ and to the authority of Scripture, not tradition, but Scripture, our desire is simply to discover what the Bible means by what it says, and so then we can draw out its principles, the principles found here, and obey them in our lives. That's our sole desire. And so, to begin with, we need to remind ourselves then, if we're to understand this text, what is the context, what is the setting, what is the environment from which these words of Jesus were spoken to Peter? You can never understand anything in the Bible. For that matter, you can't understand anything in any literature unless you understand context. Now, as you'll recall, these words came as a result, and really they were a response to Peter's great confession of Jesus when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
As we saw last time we studied these verses, Jesus has taken his disciples way north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. That's what we read in verse 13. It was a district, an area also that was predominantly at that time in history, Gentile. It was also a place that was particularly noted for its worship of many Gentile pagan deities. And it was there in this center of worship of dead, lifeless gods with shrines and temples all around them that Jesus asked his disciples a question. What are people saying about me? That is to say, what's the general population saying about me? What's the word out there on the street about me? And they said, the disciples responded and said, there is really no agreement of opinion, no consensus of opinion amongst the general population. Some some say that you're John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. Others say you are Elijah. You are Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, because Elijah's role, as we know, is to announce Messiah's coming. Others believe that you are the prophet Jeremiah, that Old Testament prophet who by legend and story, not from the Bible, but by legend, it was believed that he was associated with Messiah's coming. And they said, still others won't commit themselves. Without question, they think you're an Old Testament prophet, but they're just not going to speculate which prophet they think you are. Now, all these people who held to these positions uh, were wrong. Were wrong. Although they held Jesus in high regard as a legitimate prophet in Israel, they had a wrong view of him because they all believed he was just God's prophet, just one of the prophets, an inspired spokesman, who came to announce to them that Messiah would arrive soon. While Jesus certainly was a prophet in the sense that he spoke the words of God, it's wrong to conclude that he was just another human prophet with a message about Messiah because he was indeed Messiah. He didn't speak only about Messiah. He himself was Messiah. Remember the woman at the well said, I know that uh, when Messiah comes, he will tell me all things concerning whatever I need to know. And Jesus looked at her and said, I who speak to you am he. He is the Messiah. But we should understand that Jesus really wasn't terribly concerned with what others were saying about him. Actually, he knows all things. He knows what they were saying about him. He, he asked this question in order to draw out from the disciples what they were thinking about him. That's his whole purpose. What do you think about me? And that was his next question. You see, for two and a half years, Jesus has been revealing himself to these men. For the past two and a half years, he's been teaching them. They've had the opportunity to observe his perfect life. They've, they've observed his miracles. Now the time has come to ask him, what have they concluded? What do they think about him? Who do they think that he is? So he, he asks in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? These others say this, but who do you say that I am? And in response to this question, which, by the way, was posed to all of the disciples, the 12 apostles there, only Peter speaks up. He alone gives this great confession to Jesus. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But let me, let me just expand this for you. He's not simply giving a generic statement. In light of the context, he is saying, even though so many of our Jewish kinsmen think that you are merely a human prophet, and even though we are surrounded here by all kinds of shrines and temples dedicated by the Gentiles to their dead, lifeless gods, we believe, we believe 
that you are the Messiah and not a prophet proclaiming the Messiah's coming. And we believe that you are the Son of God who is alive, the God who is alive and not dead like these other deities. Now, folks, that's the heart of what Peter is saying. It comes at a very significant time in Caesarea Philippi in light of what others were saying about him, in light of all these dead deities. And note this, it is in response to this wonderful confession by Peter that Jesus proceeds to say something that he has never said before, at least there's no record in the New Testament that he ever said this before. He tells the disciples about his future program, something he's going to do in the future that he has not been doing up until this point. He tells them, I will build my church. Now, as I said, as far as we know, this is the first time the word church has been mentioned by Jesus. And it actually occurs only one other time in all of the four Gospels. The one other time is two chapters later in Matthew 18, verse 17, speaking of putting out of the church sinning members who will not repent. Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, those are the only two times, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, in which the word church is found in the Gospels. However, although Jesus, as I said, to our knowledge, has never mentioned his church before, I want you to understand that his disciples certainly would have been familiar with the word church because it was a well-known Greek word of that day. And even though they spoke primarily Aramaic, which was a form of Hebrew, they certainly knew the Greek language. These men later wrote in Greek, so they knew Greek. The word church is the well-known Greek word ekklesia, from which we get our English word ecclesiastical, which speaks of matters relating to the church or clergy. Now, what does ekklesia mean? Well, the Greek word ekklesia, translated church, literally means called out ones, those who are called out. It was commonly used in Greek literature to speak of an assembly of people in the sense of a group of individuals who had been called out from a larger crowd of people in order to uh, assemble and gather together. That's, that's precisely what the word means. Called out ones, people called out of a larger group to a smaller group who now assemble together. And although this word church is used primarily in the New Testament letters to speak of those who have been called out from the world to assemble for spiritual reasons, such as we are doing today, actually in ancient Greek literature, the word was used for any kind of an assembly. It could be a religious assembly. It could also be a secular assembly, people gathering for secular reasons like political reasons, uh, civil groups. In fact, the word church was even used in the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, what's called the Septuagint, in reference to Israel. Now, Israel is distinct from the church. Israel is distinct from the church. But this word church is used to describe Israel only in the sense that Israel Israel is a called-out congregation, a called-out people. Called out from where? Called out from the nations of the world. Israel is a distinct unique people. Now, when Jesus said that he would build his church, he wasn't talking about Israel. He was talking about something brand new, something that would take place in the future, 
something that wasn't in existence at that time, and Israel certainly was in existence at that time. That's why he worded the statement the way he did, using the future tense of the verb. He said, I will build my church. He also made it clear that this church was something unique. It had a unique relationship with him, different and distinct from Israel, because notice he called it my church, not I will simply build the church. I will build my church, indicating that this called out group of people would have a special relationship with him. In other words, and this is important, watch this, his church would be made up of individuals who were called out from amongst the world to believe something, to believe exactly what Peter believed about him. They would be a community of individuals who all believed and confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the church, and that's exactly what came into existence on the day of Pentecost. I read that passage before. The day of Pentecost was a Jewish feast. That's the day that the church was officially formed when a distinct community of the redeemed was established and created by God as the Holy Spirit came not only upon them, but came to permanently dwell in them. And thus from the universal church of all of God's people, the first local church was established known as the church at Jerusalem. Now in Matthew 16, Jesus reveals several key truths about his church. These key truths define for us, they define for the apostles, what the church is like, the nature of the church that Christ said he would build, how it would function, who its leader would be, how can one enter into this church, and and other important truths. And although at this time in history, I don't think these men really understood what Jesus was talking about, they would later Because the Lord gave these truths about the nature of his church in in their most elementary, embryonic forms and concepts about the church. But these concepts would be more fully developed later and given as revelation by God to the apostles who wrote them down in what's called the New Testament. And so what I want us to do starting this morning is to go through this passage. I want to teach on this passage, Matthew 16, go through it. And as we go through it, I want to amplify these truths found here about the church and explain what the rest of the New Testament has to say about the church and how it is to function. It has been many years since I have given a series of messages about the church at Lakeside. But in the early years of my ministry, in the early 80s, I taught extensively here at Lakeside about issues related to the church. And the reason I did it back then so often, and there are many sermons dealing with the church from those days, but I I did it in order to establish from the very onset and outset of my time here as pastor what needed to be, as I understood it, a biblical approach to ministry about the church. We are not left up to our own devices and own imaginations to figure out what the church is to be. God has given us specific truths in his word about the church. And so back in those days, some of the, I think, critical issues that I taught on were issues such as the kind of government for the church. What kind of government does the New Testament teach? Are are we just left up to our own to figure this out? Is it a plurality of elders who are pastors? Uh, Should it be run by a dominant senior pastor? Or should it be congregational rule? Is the church a democracy? Those are issues we dealt with back then. 
I also spoke about the, the role of deacons in the church. Were they servants who assisted the elders in ministering to people, or were they men who would run the church and, and not have much contact with people? Mostly they were, were they men who just dealt with, uh, with money issues. I spoke about uh, deaconesses back then. Did we believe in deaconesses? And if so, what was to be their role in the church? often get kind of raised eyebrows from pastors when I say we have deaconesses at our church because in their mind, they think of deacons as running the church. So we, we address that, that issue. What was to be our approach to giving? That was an important topic and biblical issue to deal with. Did we believe in obligatory tithing? That means you must give 10%. Or did we believe that the Bible taught free will giving out of love? As you grow in love for the Lord, uh, give whatever you want, but give out of love. Be generous, be sacrificial. What did we hold to about that? And then I also dealt with what I think is a critical issue. What did the Bible teach was the role in, uh, of preaching in a church service? Did we believe that the church service should be evangelistically oriented so that uh, you could bring as a congregation your unbelieving friends and neighbors and and loved ones and I would preach to them and you would say, I don't have to get into that. That's why we pay this guy. Is that what the New Testament teaches or, or we grappled with this issue. Did the New Testament say that God's people gather on Sunday mornings and, and to be fed the word of God and then they scatter to evangelize? What was to be our issue? Were we to have long drawn out altar calls because this was primarily an evangelistic service or was this a feeding service for God's people? And speaking of teaching back then, we addressed the uh, somewhat, at least in some circles, touchy question of what did the New Testament say about the role of women in the church? Were they allowed to teach in the public worship service with men present? And if, if not, what was to be their role in the local church. In those formative years also, we dealt with the question of, did we believe in publicly disciplining unrepentant members of our church? Or was that something that would be so out of place in today's politically correct modern world that out of concern for not embarrassing people, we would be very sensitive and would just delete that from our practice? So folks, those are some of the issues and more that we, that we dealt with years ago in the first few years of my ministry and I believe that those specific messages helped us to lay the groundwork and foundation for what has become these last 27 years, Lakeside's approach to ministry. Because I believe with all my heart that this is a biblical approach that we endeavor to take to ministry. These are actually the New Testament principles that I have tried to build my ministry on for nearly 27 years as your pastor teacher. And I, I just want to make sure that those today who are a part of our church who were not here years ago also know these truths so that we're on the same page, that we grow together, that you understand what we're talking about. And I realize that there is a whole new generation of Christians at Lakeside who have not been exposed to these important New Testament truths. And so I want you to be exposed. These were very important issues back then, issues that I, I literally at times had a fight for to make sure that we embrace this as a church. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff, teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. 
If you're in the area on a Sunday and looking for a place to worship, Pastor Steve would be delighted to meet you. Lakeside's address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. You can learn more about Lakeside at their website, lakesidechapel.com. One of Pastor Steve's passions is ministering to the visually impaired. So if you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and you'd like to have a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. That's blindbibles.com. This radio teaching ministry is one of Lakeside's ministries, and we have our own website, versebyverseradio.org. We maintain an extensive collection of previous broadcasts on our message archive page, right up to and including today's program. And if the Lord is speaking to you about helping to finance these Bible classes of the air, there's information there about that, too. We deeply appreciate those whose giving makes these broadcasts possible. That web address, again, is versebyverseradio.org. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson. When Jesus asked Peter who he personally thought Jesus was, Peter's response was a game changer, to say the least. Imagine the audacity 